Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today, I'll be speaking with Eve Zucker and Ben Kiernan about their anthology, Political Violence in Southeast Asia Since 1945, Case Studies from Six Countries. The book was published this year, 2021, as part of Rutledge's series, Mass Violence in Modern History. This anthology contains 17 essays from scholars in a variety of stages of their careers and a variety of disciplines, but they all specialize in some aspect of the history of violence in Southeast Asia. Dr. Eve Zucker is an anthropologist at Yale who studies remembrance and recovery after mass violence. Her previous books include Forest of Struggle, Moralities of Remembrance in Upland Cambodia, Mass Violence and Memory in the Digital Age, Memorialization Unmoored, and Coexistence in the Aftermath of Mass Violence, Imagination, Empathy, and Resilience. Dr. Ben Kiernan, also at Yale, is the A. Whitney Griswold Professor of History and the founding director of Yale's Genocide Studies Program. His numerous books include How Pol Pot Came to Power, The Pol Pot Regime, Blood and Soil, which is a world history of genocide and a book that I've, I've taught in my genocide survey course, Genocide and Resistance in Southeast Asia, and a survey of some 2,000 years of Vietnamese history entitled Vietnam. Eve and Ben, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Before we get into the book, um, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Eve, let's start with you. Um, How did you come to specialize in the anthropology of the legacies of mass violence in Cambodia and elsewhere? Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, It actually started, um, I would say, Around in 1994, I was traveling through Southeast Asia, and I visited Cambodia at that time. Um, I wasn't planning on going there, but I was told that I absolutely could not leave Southeast Asia without seeing Angkor Wat. So I changed my plans and went there, and it left an indelible impression on me. I was so struck by what was happening there and what had happened, um, seeing the country in the aftermath of genocide and war, with many signs of that still around, knowing that there was a civil war still going on, um, seeing the levels of um, hardship that were that people faced there um, left a big impression. And But I was also struck by the, the resilience that I saw among people and the kindness and sort of that juxtaposition between this horrendous past and um, people still sort of carrying on with their lives and being kind and looking forward um, was a real inspiration for me. And so um, that's what sort of propelled me into becoming more interested in uh, Cambodian studies and in particular into the aftermath of war and genocide. But I realized later that actually that interest stemmed from my own family history. My mom was a Holocaust survivor and my 
several people on my dad's side perished during the Holocaust, and it was a history that I hadn't contended with. So this question about contending, contending with memories of genocides um, was sort of there in the background when I first went to Cambodia. Right. And so you, the first time you were there was 94. So that would be, is that just after the UNTAC era? Yeah, it was right. It was just a few months after the election. And there's still sort of reverberations of the Civil War and um, there's still there's still violence going on in the countryside. Well, the Khmer Rouge uh, resumed the Civil War. They right. decided not to participate in the elections. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to pause because we lost Ben. And Ben. You're one of the world's leading experts on the Khmer Rouge and the history of genocide. Many of us are familiar with your career thanks to your prodigious output and seemingly tireless scholarly engagement with the history of violence in Cambodia and the whole of Southeast Asia. But what's your origin story? Um, what drew you to Cambodia initially and, uh, and also to studying the history of genocide and other forms of mass violence? Uh, well, I grew up in Australia and uh, at the time I was at uh, university, uh, the Vietnam War was raging and it was spreading to Cambodia. And another big issue that was uh, very important at that time in Australia was uh, Aboriginal rights and the history of the Australian Aboriginal population and its um, severe mistreatment in uh, Australian history since 1788. Uh, and so uh, these two issues came together for me in the uh, my interest in the history of genocide. But first I became interested in uh, the history of Australia's neighbours, the Southeast Asian countries. Uh, my first trip abroad from Australia was to the what was then the Portuguese colony of East Timor, just across the Arafura Strait from the Northern Territory of Australia in uh, 1971 and 72. And uh, then I became more interested in the other parts of Southeast Asia. And in early 1975, I visited uh, Vietnam in the last months of the war and then Cambodia in the last couple of months of the war. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then I uh, went on to uh, write a... Uh, PhD dissertation on the history of the Khmer Rouge uh, movement. Okay. And uh, I spent uh, about three weeks in Phnom Penh in um, February 1975 before leaving uh, via Thailand and returning to Australia. Uh, and then I started to think about uh, doing a, a PhD on the history of, of Cambodia. Uh, at first, I badly misjudged the Khmer Rouge who took over in April that year, 1975, uh, and I began to interview uh, Khmer refugees from uh, Cambodia and uh, sponsored several refugees to settle in Australia. Uh, and uh, by 1978, I realised I was quite wrong about the nature of the Khmer Rouge regime and printed uh, a correction to my views and my erroneous views about them and began a PhD dissertation in 1978 on the uh, rise to power of the Khmer Rouge regime. And uh, by 1979, I was 
living on the Thai border in uh, the border of Thailand and Cambodia for several months, uh, practicing my Khmer and interviewing refugees on the border, and uh, and then going from there to France and interviewing uh, a large number of refugees from Cambodia who had settled in France. And uh, by 1980, I was in Cambodia itself for a four-month period and had accumulated about 500 interviews with survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide in in uh, Cambodia. Who and had- so 1980 would be the the first in the first year or two of the Vietnamese occupation. Yeah, it was the second year. I, I arrived in right. July of 1980 and uh, spent four months traveling around, interviewing refugees on the spot and comparing their stories with a uh, hundred or so refugees whom I'd interviewed in France and in uh, Thailand and Australia. And I found that the stories uh, matched, really. There was no major difference between the accounts of what life had been like under the Khmer Rouge uh, in uh, wherever the refugees uh, were when I interviewed them. Uh, of course, the uh, accounts differed in depending on what part of the country they'd lived in and what year of the Khmer Rouge regime they were talking about because conditions steadily worsened from 1975 to 1979. Uh, But first I wrote a book about uh, the rise of the Pol Pot regime called How Pol Pot Came to Power, and then I turned uh, to the uh, nature of the regime itself, which became my second book, The Pol Pot Regime. Uh, but after that, I w- well, during that time also, I was concerned about what, what were the precedents for a regime like that, which uh, borrowed from obviously Maoism, but also Stalinism. And I wrote about those two uh, influences on the Khmer Rouge regime. But I became aware of the uh, very deep-seated racism of the Khmer Rouge leadership uh, particularly Pol Pot, but some others as well. And I began to think about uh, comparisons with not just Nazi Germany, but the uh, young Turk regime that had committed the Armenian genocide in World War I and other cases, including uh, the Australian uh, precedent of the way Aborigines had been treated in Australia, Native Americans had been treated in North America, and other cases of genocide throughout history. And this led me to write my third book, The Blood and Soil, uh, A World History of Genocide and Extermination. Right. And um, the, you know, the, the collecting of those uh, refugee testimonies is, you know, the, the source of evidence we have because the, the regime was so secretive and so few international visitors. I got to interview Elizabeth Becker a few months ago about um, her newest book, but we also talked about um, her experience uh, as one of the few Westerners who was able to visit the Khmer Rouge regime. Um, so I was wondering if both of you could speak to um, the the importance of the academic study of violence um, and, and what, what you want your work to accomplish. Um, okay. Um... Well, of course, the importance of studying violence is always in the hope of by being able to understand it, that somehow we can prevent it. Um, 
unfortunately, that doesn't seem to have um, fully worked out by the many cases of violence that we have today. But nonetheless, being able to see some of the signs of um, and some of the indicators that violence may erupt can help prevent it. So that's that's one part. There's the prevention aspect, but there's also the um, and you know, for me, this is quite important. It's not just understanding the causes of, of violence and understanding how, how it came to be, but also once there once violence does ha happen, how do we stop it? And also, um, how do we deal with the aftermath of it later? So, and the aftermath is a very crucial period in, in, in lots of respects. I mean, one being the you know, violence can beget violence. So if if the if the the memory of violence can 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 spur people to groups of people to want to you know whether it's revenge or that becomes a, a means of um, and I think Jeffrey Robinson talks about this to some extent. Um, it becomes it becomes a way to do things, <laughs> it becomes a way of handling situations. Um, there's also, it, 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 the violence also, it changes people, it changes societies, it changes who we are. And um, so understanding what transpired during it and how people are able to sort of move on with their lives and rebuild their communities, rebuild their sense of identity um, is, ex is extremely precarious but important process. Um, being able to make that connection also to the past of who, who they were, who their family members or their communities or who, what their society was like before a large violent episode on a, let's say, on a war genocidal scale is important to give that sort of sense of continuity, um, that there was a past and there will be a future. And that although this violence did happen, um, it did not in the end succeed in, in ultimately disrupting a sense of um, connection with the past and with your ancestors and um, where you came from. And I, and I think that the part of the importance of that is being able to have a sense, a stable sense of community is a means of, and society and identity is a, is a pathway towards peace. So uh, it's all sort of interlinked with each other. Um, but um, to, to turn our backs on studying violence would be an enormous mistake, frankly. Right, and, and of course, you come come at this from the, the academic perspective of an anthropologist, and and Ben, you're you're a historian. So what's what's the significance of studying violence from the historian's perspective? Well, Eva's touched on a few points there: uh, prevention, but also intervention, uh, as well as healing and. Uh, recovery from from the historian's point of view, I think, uh, especially in relation to prevention and intervention, uh, I think of the causes of genocide. The historical causes uh, can be separated into the long term causes and the, sort of the long term historical or socio economic and historical causes and the short-term or the immediate causes of genocide. We need to be careful to distinguish those two kinds of causes. And, of course, the long-term causes, things like war, poverty, uh, economic dislocation, uh, disruption of the mass uh, masses of people's lives, 
these are the sorts of factors, long-term factors that enable, say, a genocidal group uh, which has genocidal intent to recruit supporters, build an army and uh, get into a position where they can rise to power and then implement their ideas, uh, their policies and impose their will violently, genocidally upon a society. So those long-term causes historically are very important in the building up of a genocidal polity of a of a group that is able to carry out its will. But, of course, the immediate causes are those decisions that it makes when it comes to power. Um, and in, uh, in many cases, it's not, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that it is going to conduct a genocide or implement one uh, when it does come to power. And so the, uh, the prevention of genocide is often... Uh, short-circuiting the long-term historical causes by addressing the issues of poverty, economic dislocation, and so on, so that there is no chance for a a small minority extremist group to build up uh, a a force that will enable them to seize power. Uh, But then if they do do that, uh, we have to look at the... uh, immediate causes, the decision-making that, that brings about the genocide in, uh, in the short term. And, and that's where intervention comes in. I think that you know, the, the United Nations and other uh, international forces have to be ready to, to intervene to prevent a genocide if it looks like it's going to happen. And uh, that's, I think, another way that historians can look at it and, and say this is, this is the type of group that would take advantage of the long-term historical causes that have helped helped it come to power, and uh, and will will uh, conduct a genocide, and it needs to be prevented from doing so. Right. So it's sort of identifying the short and long or long-term struct- and structural conditions that can lead to this event, and and stopping that exactly. Yeah. And in, in Blood and Soil, I think you do a great job sort of laying that out and sketching out these sort of repeating criteria, repeating patterns, and then um, having these be sort of the, the indicator. So the, the book is based on uh, an event you held in Yale in 2018. Um, what was the um, the purpose of this conference? Uh, who was there? And it's, uh, it's a very interdisciplinary group. And um, tell us about the event. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so the event came out of um... – well, we decided to to have this conference because we both felt it was time uh, to bring people together that were working on violence in Southeast Asia. And in order to be able to have an exchange of ideas to sort of get a state of the field, if you will, and also because of the particular um, historical moment we were in at, the t- at that time, um, which, as you might recall, was an extremely volatile time worldwide um, and also in Southeast Asia with, you know, authoritarianism on the rise and uh, democracy and liberalism on the decline. And uh, there were a lot of unknown factors. Uh, Systems that seemed fairly stable before were suddenly completely instable. It was was not clear what was going to happen. And Southeast Asia in particular um, 
we were seeing that we were seeing that to the to the extreme. On the one hand, we had um, Duterte um, in the Philippines with his war on drugs that was happening. Um, you also had the uh, the um, genocide being perpetrated against the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. You had um, um, massive amounts of uh, governments acting with with impunity, both in, for example, Thailand and also in uh, Cambodia. That was right around the time of the Cambodian national election, which, as you might recall, um, was uh, preceded by by violence. And it was also um, considered by many watching from the outside to have not been a, a fair election because Hun Sen and the CPP uh, ended up taking you know taking control of the full assembly, and once again Hun Sen was voted in, which came as no surprise um, given the way the election was conducted and the events that preceded it. Uh, right, and, and and there were there were there were shocking violent events such as the the murder of leading opposition figures at, uh, at I think at a gas station one morning, right. Right, exactly. So uh, you had the assassination of political opponents, the threatening of other political opponents, and that's not entirely a new thing in Cambodia. But the fact that as Cambodia was supposedly moving more towards uh, democracy um, and more towards, um, you know, becoming a more stable entity, it was it's surprising, I suppose, in that regard that, it, you know, not terribly surprising, but you you know, compared to the violence that occurred earlier, for example, in the 97 coup, you know, it, it seemed like maybe that type of violence was over, but then there were these other violent episodes that, that followed um, a number of them. I mean, so the government's showing no signs actually of, of giving up uh, violence as a political tactic um, to suppress, uh, to suppress, you know, unwanted voting or to, uh, make it impossible for the for any real sort of opposition to have a chance um, at power. So that was happening. And then the the other thing that happened that year was the, that case two closed, and that was the trial of Nguyen Chia and Q Sampan um, at the ECCC. Um, and that was quite a striking moment because. Um, that was the first time it was said that this was actually genocide and it was ruled by the courts genocide against the Cham Muslims and genocide against the um, against the Vietnamese, as well as, you know, numerous crimes against humanity. And so that was a real sort of uh, historical moment. And actually, Ben, you might want to say a few things about about that because he's been very involved with, with this, you know, through his writings and so forth, that um, it was a momentous point in history. Yeah, this was the first time that a former head of state of any regime had been found guilty of genocide by an international court. Uh, Kyusam Porn was the head of state of the Pol Pot regime. Pol Pot, of course, had died in 1998, but his deputy, Nguyen Chia, uh, as well as Kusampon, were both found guilty of genocide against the ethnic Vietnamese minority, and Nguyen Chia was additionally found guilty of genocide against the Cham Muslim minority in Cambodia. And this happened, I think, it was two weeks after 
the conference convened at Yale. Uh, and so this was, um, the judgment was handed down uh, right afterwards. And so uh, the that along with the uh, continuing genocide of the Muslim minority in uh, Myanmar and Burma uh, was, uh, was quite an important period in the history of Southeast Asia, the, uh, the destruction of the Muslim minority in Burma that, that is still ongoing. Uh, and in fact, it, it brought to, to uh, our attention uh, the connections between these two Southeast Asian regimes, the Pol Pot regime and the Burmese military dictatorship, as it was then under Ne Win. Uh, because, in fact, uh, during the Pol Pot regime, only one head of state of another regime had visited Cambodia, and that was Ne Win, the military dictator of Burma. He visited in November 1977. And uh, the Cambodian radio at the time reported that he had met four times with Nguyen Chia and four times with Kusum Porn. And uh, it's not known, it was not announced at any rate, whether he met with Pol Pot himself. Uh, but Nguyen Chia then returned to Rangoon and began or continued the preparations for a special operation called Operation Drag- uh, uh, Nagamin, the Dragon King, which was the... Uh, persecution of the ethnic Rohingya minority, uh, Muslim minority in Burma, uh, where he had only weeks before uh, visited Cambodia, where the Cham Muslim minority was being subjected to genocide by the two very people he had met with, even if he hadn't met with Pol Pot, which is, in my view, unlikely. Uh, He'd certainly met with Nguyen Chia four times, who was found guilty of that genocide. And so within months, by May 1978, uh, Operation Nagamin was in full swing and 200,000 Rohingya had fled to the Bangladesh border. And that was just the beginning in 1977-78. In 1990s, uh, another 200,000 Rohingya fled to Bangladesh. And of course, by the time our conference met in 2018, uh, a third wave of refugees, Muslim Rohingya refugees had fled because a full-scale genocide was underway in in Burma. And uh, the first of these began right after Nguyen's visit to Phnom Penh under Pol Pot. And that brings up so many important issues that uh, are discussed in the book. Um, the the connection between these various regimes, but also there's several essays that really lay out uh, especially for the the um, the reader who is perhaps not an expert in Burmese history, the the longer history of the persecution of the Rohingya, um, again going back to this operation as uh, Nagamin. Um, mm. No, the, the book. So the book has some seventeen case studies from six different countries, um, but one of the things that's clear is that there's a relationship between these Southeast Asian countries that increases after 1945. And you've just touched upon this, Ben. Could you speak a bit more to to this issue? Yes, I. Uh, our introduction uh, covers this to some extent, 
but uh, to me, Southeast Asia has always been a, a rather special region of the world uh, because of its um, maritime nature. It's more like an Asian Mediterranean than like, uh, say, East Asia dominated by the Chinese landmass or South Asia by the Indian landmass or Africa, for instance. It's a, it's a maritime world region and uh, it's, it's interconnected by the sea uh, and it shares... Uh, historically, the Southeast Asian countries share many uh, historical uh, features. And uh, this applies to uh, the, the uh, episodes of violence that have taken place uh, over the centuries in Southeast Asia. Some of them uh, share common features. Uh, for instance, the Vietnamese conquest of Champa, which I consider to be a case of genocide in the late 1400s, and early 1500s. That was the Vietnamese people moving south, the Vietnamese kingdom conquering uh, Champa along the coast of central Vietnam, Uh, and then moving further south, coming into conflict with uh, the Cambodian people in the Mekong Delta and inland in Cambodia. Uh, There were genocidal massacres, reciprocal genocidal massacres. And first, in fact, it was Cambodians who slaughtered Vietnamese Um, in the 18th century and then in the 19th century Vietnamese uh, trying to colonise and dominate Cambodia in the 1830s, uh, conducting mass murders of of Cambodians. Uh, So we have this uh, long period of the Vietnamese moving south along the coast and, uh, and conducting and engaging in sometimes mutual massacres with the peoples along the coast. The same thing happened in Burma as their uh, kingdom moved south uh, in the 18th century. Uh, they came in conflict with the Mons, the Burmese and the Mons, indeed, indeed also uh, engaged in reciprocal massacres in the mid-18th century, uh, th- which I would call genocidal massacres, ethnic slaughters on, on both sides. Uh, and that was a case of the Burmese people under their uh, royal leadership moving south along the coast, just as the Vietnamese were doing. And uh, another case is in the um, 17th century uh, where the, uh, the King Amankurat I in the kingdom of Mataram in Java uh, conducted a slaughter of uh, Muslim clerics uh, in the 1640s uh, where, which was basically a response to the arrival and intensification of Islam, which had arrived by sea uh, into, into the Southeast Asian region. So these were some of the commonalities of the uh, conflicts and violence that uh, had happened, not in every relationship between the Southeast Asian peoples, but, but occasionally these uh, violent conflicts broke out. But after 1945, after the colonisation by European powers and then World War II and the aggression by Japan and then the uh, decolonisation, after that, the connections between the violent cases uh, became much closer. They were not just similar uh, features but actually connected features. And so we have the case, for instance, of... uh, the Vietnam War breaking out in uh, South Vietnam uh, with the United States' involvement. Uh, But uh, one 
uh, example of the counterinsurgency that uh, took place there with the United States uh, advisors was that uh, the Vietnamese uh, government of the time under President Ngo Dinh Diem uh, brought in advisors not only from uh, the Philippines, an American advisor, uh, Edward Lansdale, who had helped put down the Hook Rebellion under President Magsaysay of the Philippines. He'd been an American advisor there in that counterinsurgency. But they also brought in Robert Thompson, a British counterinsurgency advisor, who had helped the um, British put down, um, even before Malayan independence in 1957, put down the ethnic Chinese insurgency in Malaya. And both of those uh, European and American advisors were brought into South Vietnam in an attempt to uh, help in the counterinsurgency against the National Liberation Front or Viet Cong in, uh, in, in South Vietnam. It wasn't successful because the situation in South Vietnam was quite different from either Malaya or the Philippines. So these countries were all different uh, in their socioeconomic makeup and their political composition. Uh, but the connections between the governments uh, of Southeast Asia were becoming much closer and the political violence was becoming much more integrated. Another example, perhaps even more uh, illustrative, was Thailand, which was the only country in Southeast Asia that was not colonised by a Western power. It really stood apart uh, and it became an ally of Japan in World War II. But then after World War II, it became much more integrated with the rest of Southeast Asia. Um, it was became a uh, uh, the host of many U.S. Air Force bases, and many of the most of the uh, I believe most of the bombs that were dropped on North Vietnam uh, were dropped by U.S. planes that took off from bases in Thailand, and the uh, Thai uh, special forces uh, had a number of battalions fighting in Laos alongside the Americans. So in that way, Thailand became much more integrated after World War II than it had been with the rest of Southeast Asia uh, in earlier centuries. And, and in, in Thailand, the United States plays a very important role in propping up right-wing factions within the Thai uh, political establishment throughout the Cold War. I mean, yeah. uh, supporting yeah. the military, that's right. supporting royalist yeah. factions and so forth. Um, and then not only were the countries of Southeast Asia more integrated, but in a way they were more globalized. The Philippines had U.S. bases, Thailand did as well, uh, and, and, and so on. And the, the whole pattern of the United States supporting uh, right-wing strongmen, be it Marcos, be it Ziem, uh, be it Lon Nol, be it um, the, Thai, uh, the Thai junta, be it Suharto. And one of the, one of the connections that I've, I've uh, referenced in, in my work that I initially saw in, in something you've published, Ben, was that, um, that the both uh, Sihanouk but also the Khmer Rouge were aware of events in Indonesia um, and the massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party and both drew their lessons uh, from, uh, from there. So um, the, the book is divided in, it's got these, these 17 case studies that cover six different countries, but it's divided into these various thematic subsections. Um, Eve, could you speak to the, the importance of these various subsections? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm actually going to talk, if you don't mind, in, in some of mm -hmm. the broader broader um, 
themes that go through rather than the particular subsections there, um, although I can go into those after. Um, but I just want to add on to something from the from the conversation from some of the things that you and Ben were just saying about um, the connections in South Southeast Asia at that particular time. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that colonialism had it was basically ending, ending for most right at the, the end of World War II, some a little earlier, some a little later. Um, uh, with, you know, once the J Japanese came in and the, you know, the, a lot of the um, colonial powers withdrew, at least for a period of time, of course, in, in Vietnam, they came back, uh, you know, and they had the first uh, Indo-Chinese War. But I think that the idea that in, in all of these places, um, through, you know, the, through uh, different military contingents and so forth, as you were just discussing, um, that some of the same ideas were circulating, ideas about capitalism, ideas about communism, ideas about, you know, uh, socialism um, that were being picked up during this period of time, some from... Um, drawing, you know, especially for Vietnam and Cambodia, where where um, people like Q um, uh, Sampan and so forth in Ho Chi Minh studied in Paris that happened because because they were both uh, former French colonies. Um, but they carried these ideas back. And um, and at the same time, there was the influence of American ideas. So I think you had not only that you had the like American militaries and their various um, operants and agents and so forth coming over and traveling from place to place within the region. But you also had the circula circulation of, of ideologies taking place. And that circulation of ideologies taking place was happening within this context of nation building, of becoming an independent nation. Like what kind of what kind of nation do we want to have? And what kind of, you know, what kind of influences are we are we looking towards um, what? And I think that that is another one of the real sort of common themes that comes through these many cases is is that uh, is this beginning. It's a new beginning, but it's a new world after World War II as well. It's not the old colonial past. It's a new world, and in this new world, there happens to be a Cold War going on, and you have these giant powers of of the U.S. and and Russia with Soviet Union and China, and um, and they're all competing with each other, and they're using the region to play some of that out. So I think that's another part of the the big connections that are that that you know, that are that are happening at that time. Um, as far as themes, this sort of leads into one of the major themes uh, within the book, which is um, has to do with when violence occurs. And one of the things that you find is that it's in these moments of precarity, of uncertainty, that it seems that there's more likely going to be chances for violence to happen. So, for example, um, in these cases where countries are transitioning either from one regime to another or um, from one um, one form of leadership to another. Um, so, for example, take the case of, we'll start with a more recent case um, of Myanmar, 
Uh, Myanmar is a very interesting case because they were transitioning to democracy when uh, when all the violence broke out against uh, the the recent rounds, I would say, uh, against the Rohingya. This and suddenly it was became important to to, uh, to people in the government, the military, of who belongs and who doesn't belong. And so suddenly these questions arise of what is Myanmar and who, who who is it that's a citizen and who do we who do we want and who do we not want and 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 this is actually a, a, a issue that's discussed quite at, at, at length also in um, in uh, Elliot Press Freeman and Andrew Ong's um, chapter uh, which talks about inclusion and expulsion um, but it's it's in the other Myanmar chapters as well in in, in slightly different forms but. You would think, you know, on the surface of transitioning to democracy, what, what's the problem? But in fact, it, bec- it creates a, uh, a certain amount of uncertainties. And, and then these people that may seem more uh, ambiguous in some sense as to their identity are, may be seen as, as, some, as a group that's, that's not included. Um, so that's um, one case, but we see it in other cases too. If you going back a little bit into the period, um, uh, the Law Nall period, for example, you know, Sihanouk was ousted in 1970, and Law Nall was installed is in the is the government there, and the civil war was going on with the Khmer Rouge. It was a great a great amount of upheaval that was going on, and then within that context, what you see suddenly is this these terrible massacres of the Vietnamese population, suddenly they become the targets of those others that do not belong to, as part of the nation. And this, this, that particular episode in history is discussed in two chapters in the book. And those chapters would be Kosal Pat's chapter and also Trung Lung's chapter. And they both approach the chapter quite differently from each other, sorry, the, the topic. Um, uh, Kosal Path takes a much more um, political science oriented uh, approach to the topic, looking at uh, the policies and practices of the um, Lanal government and, um, and discusses um, that they, how they persisted in those anti-Vietnamese policies and, and propaganda despite uh, the fact it wasn't necessarily in their interest at that time to create problems with Vietnam. And in Trump Lung's chapter, she looks at it from at the massacres um, and how they came about from, from a slightly different perspective. It takes a more religious perspective of uh, looks at the way uh, religion was used and religious beliefs and uh, were, were activated and ideas about the Tamil about evilness, um, evil others, and that this was used as a means of, of othering the Vietnamese population. And then she uh, talks further about how the, this, um, how the massacres that occurred in the past there continues to haunt present day Cambodia today. And that the memory of those massacres is, lies just under the surface, and there's quite a bit of anti-Vietnamese sentiment within Cambodia today, and um, and we, you know, and, and with some of the large investments of like the Soka Hotel, which are is owned by a Vietnamese 
tycoon, how that's right. seen as a bit of a, an affront. Who, who, who once managed the, uh, the Angkor Wat uh, archaeological park in terms of the selling tickets and so forth, which also provoked some uh, nationalist reaction amongst the Khmer population, correct? Right, exactly. Um, and mm-hmm. so, uh, so yeah, so those, that's, that's a couple different time periods of examples of, of this, these periods of uncertainty and these others, but it, but it comes through in, in several other cases as well. And when there's uh, periods of, of transition, periods of uncertainty, you could look at the Khmer Rouge period and, and that's kind of one big long episode. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a, such a radical change in the in not only in the government but the entire society, and the end. The level of violence um, was was extreme. Right, but just to circle back to the points you were making about those two uh, those two essays, I really appreciated those contributions because, uh, for obvious reasons, so much of the discourse on the history of um, violence in Cambodia focuses on the what the three years, eight months, and twenty days of the Khmer Rouge regime, and then just sort of elides the violence of the Lon Nol era and before right. Chinook's political violence, but this this incredible violence against the ethnic Vietnamese, which starts, you know, within days of Lon Nol seizing power, and which, as these essays show, are, are are you know clearly ethnic cleansing and arguably genocidal acts. Um, and I think for many non-specialists in Cambodian history, the the notion that there's there that there's this kind of violence occurring before the Khmer Rouge march into Phnom Penh on April seventeenth is 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 a revelation, and I, and I think really important for uh, properly uh, contextualizing uh, this history. Right. Um, that, that that was so, really one of the exciting yeah. things actually about the book was being able to to have cases like this included not only new scholarship but new topics also that are being brought into the discussion right one one of the things that i've i've seen in 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 doing uh, readings for for my own work is the, the, the you know the reference to uh, forms of cannibalism under the khmer rouge and you know eating Eating livers, the, the the story of eating livers is, of enemy soldiers is told time and time again. But we we also know that that uh, that also happened from Lon Knoll's troops in mm-hmm. the the years seventy to uh, to seventy five. I mean these are these are a bit um, uh, almost anecdotal, but the, that this kind of violence has a much longer history than again that that uh, that three years, eight months, and twenty uh, twenty days that um that's sort of the standard. Uh, a narrative. Now, so for both Indonesia and the Philippines, you've got essays by senior scholars, um, two, two of my favorites. Um, uh, one uh, essay is by Alfred McCoy, um, and he writes about the Philippines and particularly talks about performative violence. And uh, what's, what's his argument here on performative violence in the Philippines? Well, I think this is a masterful uh, panoramic chapter. It's a survey of Philippine politics since World War II, uh, and he interprets it in the light of theories of populism uh, and authoritarianism, uh, which he sets out at the beginning, uh, and he applies them to uh, the Philippines, but he also sets it out in the light of the global Cold War, uh, and he shows the relationship between the Philippine regimes since World War II and the present and their relationship to uh, the global Cold War. But he also looks down 
to the local level, which I think is one of the strengths of the chapter, uh, because he has a very fine-grained analysis of local-level Philippine regional politics, even down to the town level, uh, and regional political forces, uh, as well as presidential politics. And he shows how uh, local political strongmen raised private armies and how they used them to influence uh, presidential politics and uh, how that uh, set the nature of post-war Philippine uh, political uh, forces uh, in, in ways that fit in, uh, helped set the scene for uh, the nature of Philippine uh, populism and authoritarianism and violence. And he talks about the, the massive uh, death toll uh, in the uh, Duterte regime alone. They're only the most recent Philippine populist uh, avatar, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, um, 27,000 uh, people killed according to Human Rights Watch. Uh, with the bodies left uh, in the street as a warning to others, as a sign of the power of, of the regime. Uh, and uh, the same for the uh, uh, Marcos regime and for earlier regimes in the, in the late 1940s, it, all to do with the connections between local and presidential and global uh, politics. I, I, it's a highly recommended piece. Exactly. I, th I thought it was really useful in putting Duterte into context and looking at Duterte's history because he's he's the on again off again mayor in the southern Philippines for uh, for decades, right? And has this yes. this regional strongman um, uh, persona and, and brags about his various acts of violence and so forth. And a, another connection, another Southeast Asian connection I made reading that chapter was it. Um, this form, these forms of performative violence, and especially leaving the bodies out mm -hmm. uh, of the victims of the death squads, uh, resonates with Suharto. And in the early 1980s, he had the the Petrus killings, the mysterious killings where alleged gang leaders were um, would be murdered. Uh, initially started in Jogjakarta, where I used to live, and then and then moved to uh, to Jakarta proper, and um, their their bodies would be left as a warning to the community. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the, the, the sort of side stories is that uh, the death squads uh, singled out any man, young man with tattoos. So um, suddenly Indonesian men started not getting tattoos or hiding their tattoos, or in some cases trying to remove their tattoos. And um, there were, there was, there was no tattoo culture in Indonesia for some 20 years. And um, it's just, but that just that, that connection between these, uh, but both performative violence, but violence as an instrument of rule, uh, as, as a policy, display. a display. Yeah, is really useful. And, and speaking of Indonesia, there's also an essay by Jeffrey Robinson of UCLA um, that sums up his argument from his recent book, The Killing Season, which along with um, John Russo's um, uh, Buried Histories are some of the two really excellent studies of the Indonesian um murder of the, the PKI in 1965, 1966. What, what are the, the main points that Robinson makes in um, this essay that summarizes the killing season? 
Right. Yeah. So, so Robinson, yeah, he's the first chapter in the book and his, it was actually his talk. He, he gave the opening talk for the, for the conference as well. And, and, in, and in, it was perfect because it is this sort of, you know, there's the specifics about the 65, 66 massacres, but also he makes a lot of larger points that speak to the region and to, you know, to mass violence mass political violence as, as a whole. Um, and so what he does in this, this this chapter is he starts by looking at the different cases and he, uh, in, in Indonesia at that time, looking at Java, looking at, at Bali, and you know, asking like, why why are these cases different, and and you know, what 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 what's the difference there? And then he's also asking some larger questions about you know, how, you know, how does how does something like this happen, and uh, what it, what is it what is it that that causes is is it is it the leadership? Is it structural conditions? Is it um, you know, local people acting on their own. So he's trying to get to the the bottom of this. And so as he's unpacking this, then he looks at um, the army, for example, the role of the army. And and one of the things he concludes, well, one is that the army was directly responsible. Uh, This is one of his main points that in the end, it is the leaders that are responsible and the leaders of the army, the leaders who directed the army, (laughs) um, uh, for these massacres, um, and he also looks at the role that's played by um, by external forces as well. So uh, he looks at the role of the United States and also Britain, and he brings some interesting evidence into that of um, of um, correspondence. Um, that that occurred at the time and and how there you know it didn't you know the things happen the way that they happened this is one of his points that you know because the leaders made certain decisions but also because um you had these outside um governments and these superpowers and so forth that that were that were encouraging and and sort of even enabling in many cases uh, for this to happen along the way for political reasons. Um, uh, There was another point uh, that I wanted to bring in, but I, at the moment, it's slipping my mind. (laughs) But I I, I think um, Robinson does such a great job of balancing both the Cold War political context, uh, which some particularly American authors sometimes go overboard and saying, well, the Americans did it all uh, versus that, you know, the the Indonesian army is is who's responsible here and sort of balancing the two between local forces and this uh, this Cold War uh, context. Yeah, he doesn't um, he, he doesn't he doesn't let anyone off the hook. Um, the, yeah, no, no. The, and he also and the, one of the other real significant points that he makes is this is this was the other point that I wanted to bring in is one is the impunity that these leaders uh, enjoyed afterwards um, that that nothing's been done and there's been this silence in Indonesia as we all know that that it's a very different sort of case than than when you compare it to someplace like Cambodia where there's been a tribunal um, and uh, and you know that that's that's something that we need to contend with and that as scholars, and this is one of the points that he makes is that we need, you know, it's our duty to, to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a 
So I'm, I'm, I'm doing research on um, museums and memorials uh, to Cold War violence in Southeast Asia. And there's no, there, I mean, there, there's still the Museum of the Treachery of the Communist Party in Jakarta, uh, which is this, um, this Suharto era narrative uh, that talks about the evils of the, uh, the PKI. Um, and there's no official monument to the half a million to a million Indonesians who were massacred for allegedly being part of the the PKI. Um, I know the the family in Bali that did uh, open up uh, Taman 65, um, the um, 65 Park, which is really just a courtyard, an empty courtyard where uh, functions can happen. And there was a, a punk rock band recorded video there um, um, that uh, works the story of 65 in that history. But that's like the one example, and they face a lot of pressure from the government. So the, um, there's the silencing of that history. Um, also, I'm going to take a second here to uh, promote new books and past episodes of on the New Books Network. We've got, um, if you look in the back catalog, we've got interviews with um, Robinson. I got to uh, interview uh, John Rusa about his book on the Indonesian genocide. Um, I also did an interview with Vincent Bevins on his um, a journalist, his book, The Jakarta Method, showing how the Southeast Asian violence was exported to Latin America. So new books, listeners go, go through the back catalog. There's, there's, there's so much here. Um, now let's, I just yeah. like to, I just like to make one point because you talked about the silence after the uh, massacres in Indonesia, but there were some people listening, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Pol Pot was listening. He was there in China in October of 1965, uh, secretly, uh, Prince Sihanouk, as you also said, was there, but Sihanouk did not know that Pol Pot was there as well. And uh, Pol Pot and Sihanouk were both watching very carefully what was happening to the Communist Party of Indonesia, which was a legal Communist Party. Pol Pot's party was illegal, and uh, Sihanouk uh, had pr- pushed it underground. But uh, Pol Pot later said that if we had behaved like that in the, the communists in Indonesia, we would have been in greater danger than the communists in Indonesia. And he no doubt decided that he wasn't going to expose his group, his party, to that kind of slaughter that the communists in, in Indonesia, by coming out in the open and being a legal party, had been subjected to. And rather, he obviously decided he was going to subject his enemies to that kind of slaughter which he then conducted once he got to power. Exactly, exactly. And that, and that's what I think what's so wonderful about the volume that uh, we're discussing today is that making these connections and these points of comparison and showing the, the way these histories are intertwined. Um, so the book has two essays on um, war and violence in Vietnam, uh, one about Dien Bien Phu and another an analysis of the American air war. Um, what do these essays bring to the conversations about the first and second Indochina wars? Well, it's very interesting because um, these two essays are terrific on very opposed uh, perspectives. One is, is an expert uh, study of the war on the ground, and the other is a, a wonderful study of the air war. Uh, the war on the ground in North Vietnam during the French period um, is uh, by Christian Lentz, who is a geographer, uh, and it's an excerpt of his prize-winning book. It actually won the Bender Prize for Southeast Asian Studies. Uh, it's called Contested Territory, the book. 
the making of uh, Dien Bien Phu and the making of Northwest Vietnam. And it looks at that period in the early 1950s when the French uh, decided to build their, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, their camp, uh, their fortified camp at Dien Bien Phu. Air, air base. It's a, and, I forget yeah, the yeah, French well, term, but it's, it's, it's basically yeah, air base. It's yeah. A, yeah. And uh, and uh, to 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 uh, and the and the, uh, the the war that decided the fate of French colonialism in Indochina was fought there, and this was of course in the highlands near the Lao border in a very strongly populated minority area, uh, not an ethnic Vietnamese area. And Christian Lentz does a terrific job of showing how that war which was largely fought between the French and the uh, ethnic Vietnamese, Viet Minh, but with the Viet Minh both conscripting and enrolling, using both force and persuasion, enrolling and, uh, and uh, successfully uh, mobilising the local population and, and making that territory part of Vietnam, making North, Northwest Vietnam as a result of the uh, French decision to make it a battleground. Uh, and uh, it's a terrific book and it's a terrific chapter that shows how the war on the ground that set the stage for the later American war, given the later American decision to to pursue the war against the Vietnamese communists uh, was so determinative, and and uh, how the how the French were actually defeated in uh, in that uh, crucial battle in 1954. Right. And one of the things that yes. I found so eye opening in that chapter was his discussion about the um, the rumors about atomic bombing, and the, the the legacy of that memory amongst the local people around Dien Bien Phu, and their their fear that. Uh, Dien Bien Phu could have been in uh, a Hiroshima or a Nagasaki, and that um, and that this could happen. And these sort of, um, uh, I believe, sort of messianic uh, tales about uh, apocalyptic destruction spread amongst the population. It was, I thought, that was a real eye opener for much more of the diversity of the experience of violence in uh, in uh, in Southeast Asia. Yes, this actually has been uh, documented by Fred Lugowal in his book Embers of War that the, what we had known to some extent is much better documented now that um, John Foster Dulles offered the French Premier Georges Bidot, I think, um, uh, two atomic bombs to be used at uh, Dien Bien Phu. And uh, obviously rumours of this came about. The French rejected the offer uh, but uh, the rumours of it did spread to the local population on the ground uh, and it became uh, developed a life of its own, this fear of an atomic bomb. And uh, the air war itself in the Second Indochina War is the subject of Sophie Quinjudge's chapter, uh, which I think is the most concise and informative history of the US air war over Vietnam that I've seen. Uh, it's It's very... Uh, detailed, but still, uh, you know, it, it's only a chapter. It's very readable, and she covers much of the uh, of the story uh, effort, effortlessly. I think in, in this chapter, it's just amazing how uh, the uh, extent 
of the tonnage of the bombing of even South Vietnam. Most people think of the bombing in terms of the bombing of North Vietnam, particularly the Christmas bombing, uh, but the South Vietnam was much more heavily bombed by US aircraft than North Vietnam was. And uh, indeed, the tonnage dropped on South Vietnam was as high as 4 million tonnes, uh, which I think was, uh, she's got the figures in the chapter, Sophie Quinn Judge provides the figures. I think it's greater tonnage, 4 million tonnes, than, than was dropped on um, uh, most other theatres of war in World War Two. I'm not sure if I've got that right, but it's certainly uh, extremely high. Uh, tonnage of bombs dropped on South Vietnam, and it started very early. Uh, most people think of the escalation of the war in 1965, but in fact, um, in 1962, U.S. aircraft in that year alone flew 2,000 attack sorties over South Vietnam alone. They started attacking North Vietnam in 61, but in South Vietnam, they flew 2,000 attack sorties, in, in 1963, U.S. aircraft flew 6,000 attack sorties in South Vietnam alone. So the air war was extremely important in South Vietnam. It wasn't just the uh, 16,000 troops that President Kennedy sent to uh, South Vietnam or the half a million troops that were there under President Johnson. Uh, it was the air war as well that was uh, extremely important and as Sophie Quinn Judge shows, it was favoured by American uh, planners because it was so relatively cost-free that uh, the damage could be done with relatively few American casualties. Few. Okay, well, that leads to a transition to another section of uh, the essays, uh, the essays on Thailand. And um, you've got a couple essays on Thailand. One covers mass organizations during the Cold War, uh, but also in recent, their use in recent political struggles. And the other looks at judicial maneuverings under the Thai junta. Um, so can you speak to what these two essays address in terms of the history of violence in Thailand? Yes, they both uh, make an interesting combination. The, the uh, essay by Pung Tong Pawakapan, who was uh, a very accomplished Thai writer who has held positions uh, not only in Japan and Singapore, but also at Harvard and Yale, and is a Cambodia specialist as well as a distinguished commentator on Thai uh, politics and human rights. Uh, she talks about the uh, political side, whereas Terrell Haberkorn, who is a very good historian of Thailand, writes about the judicial and legal side of the human rights issues. And Pung Tong talks about the uh, if you like, behind the scenes, uh, rather not so well covered uh, resurgence of political mass organizations uh, that are royalist. Uh, of course, they're well known in the 1960s and 70s, these uh, mass organizations such as the Village Scouts, uh, which played a role in the uh, 1976 coup that ended the three years of the democracy period. But what she is able to show, uh, which is rather uh, astonishing and uh, disappointing, is the continuing role, the resurgence of these royalist-backed uh, mass organisations 
in the political uh, repression that's continuing to take place in Thailand and, and even more uh, repressive since the, 19, uh, the 2014 coup in Thailand uh, that has played such a, a discriminating and repressive role in political life in Thailand. Yeah. One of the things yeah. I found so fascinating about um, her contribution was both identifying these groups and, sh- and showing the way these, you know, essentially paramilitary organizations can be used as political pressure and, and their role in um, in the violence and a couple of specific incidents, but also the parallels with um, similar organizations and their similar role in Indonesia. And it reminded me so much of the Pamuda Panchasila, the uh, the group that's in camouflage that's um, highlighted in the Joshua Oppenheimer film, The Act of Killing, and the uh, and that their legacy, um, you know, from the '60s up until the present, and the way they still get used as sort of you know demonstrators for hire or thugs for hire, um, and so just with the 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 mission of this book showing these connections around Southeast Asia. That was so eye-opening for me. Yes, that is an interesting comparison. But I think in Thailand, you've got the additional legitimacy that's lent to these organizations because of the role of the monarchy. And that uh, is uh, reinforced by the legal side, the the, uh, les majestés cases that are being used with increasing frequency to silence dissent. Uh, A recent case, for instance, where a, a academic in his PhD, which has not been uh, uh, released by the university uh, because of a mistake he made, a rather innocent mistake that uh, he has since corrected in the publication, but his uh, PhD has been withheld by the university uh, because of the threat made by a royalist uh, representative uh, even though the PhD refers to a distant member of the royal family in the early 1900s. Uh, and so this, the university has been intimidated by the royalist uh, faction and uh, the PhD is no longer available to the public. Uh, the dissertation has been withheld. And, and here uh, Tyrell Haberkorn uh, discusses a couple of cases where the uh, uh, victims of this legal repression have been suppressed. And uh, so she looks at the jurisprudential side of the continuing political repression in Thailand since the 2014 coup. And so along, along with the political side, we have the legal side, which makes uh, life seem, the future political and democratic life in Thailand seem much more uh, repressive than it was even 20 years ago. Uh, Quite different from Indonesia, uh, which you mentioned because of the uh, continuing vivacity of uh, democratic life in Indonesia, which didn't seem to be uh, the case or didn't seem likely to happen in the 1960s and 70s. Exactly, exactly. But um, but just the the idea of these paramilitary organizations, I just found um, really, really insightful. so unsurprisingly, uh, Cambodia and Myanmar dominate this volume. Um, there's a number of essays on um, the, uh, the history, but the ongoing violence and, and genocide against the Rohingya in Myanmar and in Burma. Um, could you speak to some of these essays? 
Yes, well, we have um, four chapters on um, Burma or Myanmar, as it's now called, uh, and uh, they vary in their focus. Uh, there's an early chapter in the book looks at violences and uh, of violence and exclusion. Uh, a chapter by Elliot Press Freeman and Andrew Ong looks at uh, the overall military dictatorships. Uh, repression of ethnic minorities, not just the Rohingya, but other ethnic minorities, setting the scene for the discrimination against the Rohingya and how some ethnic groups are excluded from the polity. But then we focus in on the Rohingya case. We have three chapters uh, by Catherine Munyon on the issue of intent, a legal analysis of uh, the genocidal intent uh, built into the campaign against the Rohingya. And then Maesha Alam looks at the strategy and the ideology of the campaign against the Rohingya. And then finally, uh, Azim Ibrahim looks at the genocide itself uh, against the Rohingya, leading up to the uh, events that were uh, peaking at the very time of the uh, conference that we held that led to, to the book. There are six chapters on Cambodia, uh, and they also range in their focus across the disciplinary spectrum and the, also the, the time spectrum. And in the case of William Kwok's chapter, um, the uh, geographical spectrum across Cambodia, because he's looking at the uh, political organisation of genocide, and he focuses on what he calls the central local coordination problem in war. Uh, this is a recurring issue in the historical discussions of the Cambodian genocide. It's been a long-ranging uh, ra debate uh, as to whether central or local or regional issues uh, determine what happens and across the geography of Cambodia, uh, what were the differences, the themes and variations, as Michael Vickery, the historian of Cambodia, talked about, or whether, as Anthony Barnett called it whether the democratic Cambodian regime of Pol Pot was a highly centralised dictatorship and also looking at the time factor, whether uh, I argued it was slowly and uh, uh, deliberately increasing its power, centralising its power over time. Uh, and William Kwok in his chapter looks at the nature of the orders that came down from the centre to the regions, to the local areas, uh, and he talks about incomplete orders or particularly vague orders that could be interpret, interpreted in different ways at the local level, at the regional level, even coded or optional orders or ambiguous orders, which then gives the regional commanders or the zones uh, a choice as to how to interpret their orders. And William Kwok tries to make uh, a point about some regions or zones, taking up the opportunity to maximise the violence that they have the opportunity to inflict uh, and to impose in their zones using the choices or the opportunities. Of course, he compares this to uh, the, the Nazi German history of uh, what's called working towards the Fuhrer, uh, in other words, interpreting uh, the Fuhrer's will from these sort of coded orders that come that come down. Uh, but we also have two chapters on the 
1970 to 75 period, the Lon Nol regime that preceded the Pol Pot regime, and particularly the uh, violence, uh, which some have called genocidal violence, targeting the ethnic Vietnamese minority in that period, two chapters by uh, Kosol Path and uh, Tram Luong, a Cambodian and a Vietnamese scholar, looking at those uh, examples of uh, mass murder of ethnic Vietnamese from different viewpoints. And a chapter by Daniel Bultman on the uh, persecution of prisoners in uh, Tulslang Prison, uh, S21, and the use of their bodies for medical experiments or so-called medical experiments. Uh, we have a chapter by Pirum Gaya. You know, um, excuse me, Ben, but one of the things I found so interesting on that chapter on S21 was um, uh, the way that he explains it. It's much larger that the the complex was much larger than what you would visit today of just the museum site, that it included much of the surrounding neighborhood. And the staff was much larger than I think people sort of have in their mind um, what uh, who was staffing there. I mean, there's this, there's this uh, sort of myth that Phnom Penh was evacuated on April 17th and nobody was in the city until, what, uh, January 1979, right? But he's arguing that you know that around the uh, this complex, there's there's um, hundreds of of staff uh, of varying degrees, and also in, engaging in things like medical practices, medical training um, on on the prisoners, um, fabricating medicine. The the what do you call it, the rabbit pills? Is that the term? Yeah, um, and it just it it forces us to revise that older stereotype that I think we got from a lot of popular films, like maybe um, um, uh, the killing fields or so forth of this, you know, that nobody's in Phnom Penh. It was an anti-urban revolution. Yeah. If I just jump in here. Yeah. The Tulsaland grounds were much larger and and consisted of different buildings and different places and places where the guards slept and uh, it was pretty extensive. And also in Phnom Penh at the same time, there was, um, at least one or more factories also where people came to work. So it is very different than the the um, image people often have of a completely deserted city. But on Daniel Boltman's chapter, actually, just one of the things that, that I thought was so outstanding of what he describes is the... Um, the real, one, one is the sort of real visceral nature of the work that these cards are doing. You know, it's, you can't get, I mean, li- literally the word visceral is it. <laughs> They're, you know, digging around in people's organs and drawing people's bloods and removing gallbladders. And, um, but it has a real, you know, it, it, it obviously has a lot of um, you, comparisons with what was going on, you know, during the Holocaust with the medical experiments and so forth. But the other similarity with with the Holocaust is not only the medical experiments, but this idea of using these human bodies as um, a resource, a resource for the state. And that meant all parts of the human body. And, you know, so they're drawing out blood or gallbladders or whatever it might be for the purpose of um, providing these things to soldiers that are then fighting for the state. Exactly. And it re- reminded me of uh, Mark Driscoll's uh, uh, book on the necropolitics of the, the Japanese empire, his um, absolute erotic, absolute grotesque, and the things that the Japanese imperial army is getting up to during the occupation of Korea and, and then the later Manchuria. Um, 
Yes, there was indeed a, a document called uh, Human Experiments, Pisaut Manu, which was uh, describing these very experiments, uh, slashing people's stomachs and uh, putting them in water and seeing how long they took to float to the top, exactly as um, Daniel describes and, and Eve has mentioned. And that document was found not in the prison, but in the street across the road, uh, in the houses that belonged to the prison, as Eve has described, you know, that there was a much larger uh, operation than just the prison itself, but it, it belonged to the prison staff. Well, this sort of segues into uh, another essay um, on, on Cambodia, uh, but, I, well, focusing on Rithi Pond and his uh, production of the uh, of his film S21. What is it? Is it S21, the Khmer Rouge killing machine? Is that the full title? Yes. Yes, that's by another uh, Cambodian, Pirum Gayar, um, which is about Riti Pan's 2004 movie S21, uh, which examines the film. Uh, she interprets it as prefiguring the trials of the Khmer Rouge leaders that had not yet begun at that point. And, and she entitles her chapter Investigating Genocide. It's a documentary that uh, Riti Pan made that brings together 11 former torturers who worked in the prison with two of their victims. And it's a very interesting uh, analysis of the film using not only the film script, but also the documents uh, of the of the making of the film that she puts together. And, and I know that that um, uh, film influenced uh, Joshua Oppenheimer in, uh, in his uh, The Act of Killing and then The, the Look of Silence. Um, where he, uh, you know, goes to uh, get, gets gets the the um, survivors or children of survivors or brother of survivors to confront the uh, the, the genocide there, especially in the the second, uh, I think, less seen film, the um, the look of silence, where he uh, focuses on one character who does the the optometry exams on these former former killers. Um, right. What, what, one difference yeah. between the, those two cases, though, are that. You know, in Oppenheimer's film, it's there's no there's no tribunal that's taking place or about mm-hmm. to take place, and so that's actually the one of the key points that she's making is what is the influence of what's going on with this film, <laughs> with the ECC happening, you know, coming up. Um, it would be interesting to imagine Joshua Oppenheimer's film within that context that that Richie Pun's film's taking place. Well, I don't, I don't, yes. yeah, there <laughs> won't be trials in Indonesia anytime soon. <laughs> no. um, so um and then there's a there's another essay that looks at the um the violence in um uh in Cambodia um in from the lens of international relations and in the third uh the third Indochina war could you speak to some of the um uh the conclusions that essay draws Well this is a chapter by Huang Minvu and he looks at all of the various international actors uh, from Vietnam to China, the United States and ASEAN. And he's critical of all of them for not taking earlier action and for prolonging their inaction to, um, uh, to the benefit of the Khmer Rouge and for allowing the genocide to happen and for not intervening earlier. He's very critical of the Vietnamese for not uh, taking earlier the action that they did to intervene and overthrow the Pol Pot regime. But he's also very critical of China and the United States for their 
support of the Pol Pot regime uh, after its overthrow, or in fact, in, in the case of China, during its tenure in, in power, uh, and uh, ASEAN as well, the, the support that those countries and organisations in the international arena gave to the Pol Pot regime, despite the fact that it had committed genocide uh, for long afterwards in the United Nations and other international fora. So it's, a, it's an international analysis that, uh, that he's uh, wheeled to criticism uh, of the international actors for failing to take into account the humanitarian needs of the Cambodian people who were being subjected to genocide. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, Eve, um, you, you specialize in the, the, the memory and the, the recovery after mass violence in, uh, in Cambodia specifically, but also comparatively. Um, is there anything else you want to address in terms of what some of these essays uh, touch on in terms of these legacies of violence um, in the, uh, through the 80s, the 90s, into the 21st century? Right. Um, I, you're just reminding me of uh, Laura McGrew's chapter, actually, that's, that's in this volume. Um, and she is really, you know, she's looking at more, you know, from the UNTAC period up to today and and, and, and ask the question, what, what's happening right now as far as what's happened since and what kind of impact, you know, in this post-genocide um, era that we're in, what kind of impact is that having on violence in Cambodia today? And there is, you know, quite a bit of violence in terms of, you know, repeated, which we've talked about a little bit earlier, repeated cycles of state violence but also there's other types of violence that she addresses, like the mob violence that, you know, somebody shouts that someone's a thief and, and then, you know, that person might be uh, beaten to death. And often the, the, you know, in cases the police would stand by and watch. And so she tries to identify what some of those causes are rather than simply saying that, oh, it's just, you know, they, there was violence in the past and, you know, people simply haven't re- recovered from that. Um, uh, she says instead that that there are reverberations from the genocide years, a, la- a lack of trust, a, la- a sense of um, a lack of uh, faith in the judiciary system, a lack of faith in the, that the police will carry out their jobs. Um, but there's also something else going on that that's really, you know, in this moment, which is the increasing authoritarianism of the of the Hun Sen government. Um, and that that has created that has actually increased the structural violence that's happening in Cambodia, both economically, but also in terms of human rights as well. So people's rights have really been curtailed. And at the same time, there's this really wealthy part, you know, sect, sector of the population. And then there's everybody else, um, even though there has been a rising middle class in the in the last number of years, there's there's still this great disparity and that creates certain tensions and and it makes people feel fairly powerless uh, in those kinds of circumstances. And more hopefully, she adds that that you know there's there has been things like the Damayatra um, peace marches and so forth. And so there's efforts towards keeping the peace. And that you know, and that also that you know, Cambodians have shown an incredible amount of resilience despite you know all that they've been through um, in rebuilding their lives and and um, working towards. You know, towards a more peaceful future. Yeah, I, f- I found that section on the Damiatra movement to be 
a nice moment of optimism at the end of <laughs> a pretty intense read going through this volume. So I appreciated that. Now, I also want to ask you a somewhat personal question. Um, both of you have studied some of the most shocking and disturbing examples of violence. And you also mentor graduate students and, and other researchers who study uh, this violence. What's your advice for scholars working on such, such subjects? And how should we manage our, um, I guess, what we call self-care? And what are your strategies for avoiding, what is it, secondary or tertiary trauma from looking at these horrific histories? So I guess I will go first. Um, I find that in most cases, people do not do bad things. In fact, they do a lot of good things. You know, people talk a lot about, you know, in, for example, in the Cambodia case of people wanting revenge and so forth uh, after the Khmer Rouge. And, and that's true in some cases, but that's not true for mo most. The amount of restraint most of the time is really remarkable. People have people living in their villages that killed their family members and they choose not to be violent. So I, I think that's really inspiring and it's something to remember that most people are good. And um, the other the other little piece that I find helps me is is looking at those acts of kindness in you know individually and appreciating them. Um, and they they appear all the time. You know, there's there's really these wonderful acts of kindness and these beautiful relationships. And that's the bigger picture. You know, the violence is, is not the norm, it's the exception. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually quite useful. Ben? Mm. Uh, well, for me, um, I have to agree with uh, what Eve said, that there are many cases of, uh, of kindness and, uh, and also uh, resistance in Cambodia. Uh, also in East Timor, you know, one, one um, thing that uh, helped me uh, deal with the sadness and, and, and tragedies of, of both of those cases was incorporating the examples of, of resistance to uh, mass murder in, in the book that I wrote on genocide and resistance in Southeast Asia, uh, just to show that people didn't um, take it lying down. Resistance wasn't always heroic. But some, in some cases it was, uh, and it wasn't always successful, but in some cases it was. Uh, and uh, the example of both uh, kindness and forgiveness and resistance uh, does exist uh, as a, a model for uh, feeling optimistic about the future of both East Timor uh, and uh, and Cambodia, and of course, uh, although Cambodia and East Timor are examples of perhaps the worst things that could happen in Southeast Asia, uh, there are other countries in Southeast Asia where things have gone much better. And uh, for my students, uh, teaching Southeast Asian history uh, is. Uh, a case where you can show a variety of different historical circumstances and progress as well as disaster. And uh, that's been helpful for me and I think for my students just to show the, the variety and the, uh, and the cosmopolitanism of Southeast Asian history. You know, the, the examples of uh, racism and repression and violence are countered by examples of 
cosmopolitanism and uh, living side by side and uh, nonviolence. And uh, that exists, in, you know, in a large region of more than 600 million people, there are plenty of examples of all kinds of uh, responses to human tragedy, just as Eve has pointed out. So you, you've both been really generous with, with your time, and I appreciate that. But I've got two more questions before I let you go. First, um, can you each recommend uh, two books for our listeners? And uh, Eve, let's start with you. What would be your, your two book recommendations? Okay, I'm not going to give any of the big names because I think most people know them already. Um, okay. So um, I'm going to just recommend uh, two books. One would be... Um, one is, it's not, it's just a few years old, not too old, but Kataria Um's book, uh, which is from the from the Land of Shadows. Uh, what's the subtitle here? War, Revolution, and the Making of the um, Cambodian Diaspora. Well, it's not mostly about the diaspora. In fact, it's mostly about uh, the Khmer Rouge period and the causes of what brought the Khmer Rouge to power. And I found it to be a, a really interesting read because I thought she brought in a lot of factors that I hadn't read much uh, that much about before she focuses she includes an analysis of the uh, colonial uh, legacy and also she talks a lot about the um, economic s- situations and during the CNO period as well and another thing that she does that's a little different is she includes uh, there's a chapter on um, children only on children and then and then she also has another chapter on the necropolitics of the Khmer Rouge. So it's a, it's a really interesting and different kind of read. And she's coming from a cultural studies background. So it's a different type of approach. Um, the other book I would recommend would be Leah Zani's Bomb Children. Um, and what I bring this in for two reasons, one, three reasons. One, she's an anthropologist and she's also... Um, talking about Laos, which is something, a country that often gets forgotten about. Um, And so her book is about uh, the cluster bombs, all the unexploded ordnance in Cambodia and how people live with those unexploded ordinances today. And it includes interviews and research with um, clearance, people who do the bomb clearance and also people who live with this presence of violence in their communities because they can explode at any time and also with the aftermath of the war. So um, I thought her book is a, is a very interesting read. It's very reflexive. She includes poetry at the beginning of her chapters, um, but it's a, it's, it's a good one. And I'll just throw in one last, um, um, one last person. It's not a book, but Alex, uh, Alexandra, uh, Kent's work on um, on East Timor, um, I found to be quite helpful. She looks at transitional justice and local memory uh, practices. Sorry, Leah Kent, not Alexander Kent. Alexander Kent is Cambodia. Leah Kent. <laughs> Leah Kent on East Timor. Yeah. Could you just re- just repeat the author and the title of the first two uh, the two books? Oh, so the first one is Kataria Um. She's at UC Berkeley. Um, it's from the land of shadows, war, revolution, and the making of the Cambodian diaspora. And the other one is Leah Zani, which is Z-A-N-I, uh, Zani, uh, Bomb Children, Life in the Former Battlefields of Laos. And that was published in 2019. So it's very recent. Yeah. Then the bringing Laos into the conversation is like, really important. And 
I was speaking with Ben before the podcast, and um, in Viet Thanh Nguyen's nonfiction book, Nothing Ever Dies, he actually uh, talks quite a bit about the Hmong experience, which is frequently sort of marginalized from the the narrative of the war. Um, ben, two books? Or yes, I'd like are you to break the rules. I'd like to first recommend uh, Jeffrey Robinson's book, uh, The Killing Season, uh, which is the, I think, the definitive account of the Indonesian massacres. 1965-66. Jeffrey Robinson has a chapter in our book, the the longest chapter covering the Indonesian massacres, and he gave the keynote address at our conference. And I think this is a a marvellous account of the still uh, neglected story of the wholesale massacres that took place in Indonesia 1965-66. The killing season, it's a uh, neglected event in the Cold War in our yeah, century. Yeah, and unfortunately, fortunately, there's, like- a, there's a wave of scholarship coming out, Robinson, Rusa, but also a number of young scholars, a number of young young Australian, and, and most examples yeah, come to mind. Jessica Melvin has written young, a book. Australian um, women. John Rusa has written yeah. a book. That's right. And and, and listeners, um, listeners can plunge into the New Books Archive, look under New Books and Genocide, and there's a whole series of interviews on, on Indonesia. So check out the archive. Great. Okay, next, yeah. Ben? Yeah, next, uh, Svai, <clears throat> S-V-A-Y, a Khmer village in Cambodia, which is uh, a book by May Ebihara, who was the first American anthropologist to work in a village in Cambodia. She did that in 1959, 1960. Uh, sadly, she died about 15 years ago. But this is a publication of her uh, dissertation, which was the result of that work. It's an astonishing very early publication, a very early work, which uh, tells you exactly what a Cambodian village was like in the 1950s and 60s uh, before the Vietnam War spilled over and the Cambodian genocide took place. It's called Svai, a Khmer village in Cambodia by May Ebihara. I'd like to also recommend a third book. It's called Perpetrator Cinema. It's brand new, just came out last year, Perpetrator Cinema, Confronting Genocide in Cambodian Documentary. It's by Raya Morag, who is an Israeli scholar, an expert in cinema, who's written books about the cinema of the Vietnam War, of the Middle East, and is an expert on Holocaust cinema. And she has studied Riti Pan's film and a number of other films about the Cambodian genocide. And she brings to this phenomenon of Cambodian post-genocide cinema and understanding that she says uh, brings Cambodian cinema to global uh, awareness uh, as a global pioneering form where the perpetrators are brought to confrontation with their victims for the first time in uh, the history of global cinema. And Raya Morag's book, Perpetrator Cinema, shows exactly why and how that happens. It's a pioneering form of cinema, she says, uh, different from the Holocaust where the victims could never get to confront their perpetrators and torturers. But in the Cambodian case, for a number of reasons, uh, this was possible and it was done. And therefore, Cambodian cinema, as is shown in... uh, Hiram Gayard's chapter in our book, uh, Cambodian Cinema, 
not only by Riti Pan, but by in a number of other films by different Cambodian filmmakers, they were able to actually confront their uh, torturers. Excellent. I'm going to definitely look into those books. Um, so finally, what are you working on now? Um, what can we hope to see from you next, um, Eve? Well, I'm working on a, a few different projects, actually. Uh, one is I'm working on one project has to do um, with these statues in Anlong Bang. Um, they were statues of uh, the Khmer that were built by Tomok or ordered to be built by Tomok. Um, that was a tribute to uh, the soldiers that fought for him in Anlong Bang. And now it's a, it's a, uh, a religious site. Um, it's been transformed. Um, and many of the statues are broken. Uh, so it's been, it now features Ye Mao and also, which is a, uh, a spirit, a female spirit in Cambodia. Um, and it now also features other spirits as well, shrines to them. Uh, that's one project. And the other projects, uh, quite a few of the other projects have to do with digital memorialization, looking at the role of digital technology and um, and virtual capacity in terms of memorial practices. And, and that's for covers um, mostly um, Cambodia and also the Holocaust. So a few projects around that. Yeah, I, I know that um, Riti Pan's uh, organization in Phnom Penh is at the Bopana, Bopana. Institute. Uh -huh. Bopana. Um, they they um, produced an app on the Khmer Rouge yes, that uh, Khmer. I had on my iPhone that was, um, I thought, a really innovative form of public history. Yeah, there's another one too that was put out by RUPP that's really interesting mm -hmm. that that um, called Mapping Memories Cambodia and that uses GPS. So you go to a site and then oh. and the students there made it. Uh, well, they 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 did the interviews that are then on the app and and um, it's a really interesting project. So that that app is called Mapping Memories Cambodia. Right. Okay, I'm gonna definitely look for that. Um, fantastic. Um, Ben? I'm working on a couple of projects. One is a long-range environmental history of Cambodia from earliest times to the present. And the other one is a history of resistance to genocide over the centuries in different countries around the world, different cases of genocide. Well, I, I know that you did an excellent job of working in environmental history to your, um, your survey of Vietnamese history, and that was one of the things I really appreciated about that uh, that volume. So thank I look forward I look forward to seeing that. So um, Ben Kiernan and Eve Zucker, thank you so much for chatting with me. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. So this has been a conversation with Eve Zucker and Ben Kiernan of Yale University, who are editors of Political Violence in Southeast Asia since 1945, Case Studies from Six Countries, published by Rutledge in 2021 as part of the series Mass Violence in Modern History. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.